Welcome to the Thoughtful Gamer Podcast, episode number 89. As always, my name is Mark. Here with me today is Ben. Hello, hello. And we are here to talk about a couple of the games we've been playing recently. I've got a few new prototype slash review copies that we've been playing with, and uh, we're going to talk about four of them. A couple are not yet out. A couple, I believe, have been released, but... Uh, this is the first time I've played with them. We're going to talk about four games. Dice Command, Battle for Baternia, Board Games, The Board Game, The Card Game. That's that's the name of one of them. The best name ever. <laughs> and then finally Union Station, which is coming to Kickstarter very, very soon. I think within the next week or two, it'll be up on Kickstarter. So let's talk about Dice Command. Uh, we've played this one once so far, and it is a two-player dice placement World War II game. And it's interesting. I thought it would be more combat-focused. And in fact, it's more economy-focused. Yeah, very much so. Which I actually kind of liked, because the combat's nothing special. And it's much more about, like, super high-level troop and economy management than it is the tactical army people on a battlefield kind of thing i I think it's that's obviously still something you have to pay attention to but if you spend all your time on the armies you're just going to lose the game to econ there's a lot of potential for shenanigans uh if if one person focuses too much on pumping out an army um you can you can just Nuke them to death, or <laughs> there's a lot of those uh, the action cards that you can take that'll, um, you know, negate plays that you make with your army. So, yeah. So, let me explain how it works. You're given ten dice for each side. You have five available at the beginning, but you can recruit more. And you're there's like three currencies. There's the dice themselves. There's money, and there is research. And you start with four cards that represent, like, your worker placement spots. Uh, But it's not necessarily all worker placement. Some of them you put in money. Sometimes you you can put in research. Uh, But most of the time you're you're selecting dice to go on these spots. And it'll be something simple as recruiting, which puts that die onto the battlefield. Or it can be you can pay money to get access to more of your dice. You can use dice to get money and you can research. In addition, there is a rotating set of cards, of three cards off to the side, that are just additional actions you can take. Uh, But as soon as you take one, it rotates out for the next player. Um, So that's constantly shifting. And your goal is to get four of your dice to the other person's end line. I think it's five, actually. Huh? Five. No, you had to go four. Isn't it five? I'm pretty sure it's four. Oh, okay. It was four. Never mind. And in that sense, it's almost like, what's that game you play as a kid? Is it Capture the Flag where you're trying to get to like... No, no, like the actual like yard game. Oh, yeah, Capture the Flag. Yeah, where you're trying to like get access to the back line of your opponent. I guess in Capture the Flag, you're trying to bring it back. But it's it's that yeah. feeling where you're just trying to sneak past everybody and get through defenses and, and get to the other side. And I think it I think it works. Yeah, because I think there's this rock paper scissors dynamic in the game. So 
based on like in quantum uh the it's not as sophisticated as quantum but the dice when they are military units are different types of units based on the die face that is the number that's facing up on the die and if it's a low number they're faster if it's a high number they're slower you can also put out on the field artillery units which are two dice stacked on top of each other which uh, are the same speed as the slow dice. They're just more armor, but they 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 take two dice, so they they take two workers away from you. Uh, so they all have their plus, you know, pluses and minuses. And then the other way, other than just manually marching your troops down to the opposite side, is that you can develop nuclear weapons through focusing more on research, and you can then submit research to develop nuclear weapons, which automatically transport two of your dice to the opponent's end line. So if you do that twice, you automatically win the game. And this is how our game ended. Yeah, which is, yeah, I, I was kind of going to test that out towards the beginning, but you got an early play where you were able to steal one of my research away from me. And so then instead of going all in on the nukes, I decided to, to upgrade one of my other cards, which is the other purpose of the research tokens is you can upgrade your action spaces to make them better. Which it's also a lot cheaper to upgrade than to get nukes. I think it's only one research needed to upgrade where it's five to get nukes the first time. Yeah, and then towards the middle of the game, I had an opportunity to get like two or three research tokens in one turn. I'm like, oh, I'm going to jump on that because the battlefield was pretty uh, lightly populated at that point. And I ended up winning with, I, I marched two manually down and I won with the nuke, uh, which got me the other two. And I think there's the rock, paper, scissors thing because... I think if someone's going for nukes, I think light infantry that's fast can race across the battlefield and outpace that. However, I think the light infantry obviously loses to the heavy infantry because it's just there's Not more strong. armor. Yeah. Uh, or their artillery. The yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, I think nukes beat a slow battlefield strategy where you're you're putting out armor and heavy units that just can't race across the battlefield fast enough. And so I think I don't know in our game it was interesting. We're going to we're going to play again I think after this, but there was a bit of maneuvering along maneuvering along those lines and shifting what your emphasis was I think based on what your opponent is doing is kind of the core of the game. Yeah. There's a lot of really interesting choices and like tactical decisions as well. Um, the, one of the things that I really liked, we had really strong buildings in the middle. There's like two buildings that if you um, if you take the building, uh, you get a sp uh, power from from controlling it. Um, and one of them gave us like extra strong units while in combat, and the other one let you get really cheap units as a, a forced deployment. And I I would like to play with other buildings because i feel like those could really change the way the game feels if you have you know weaker buildings where you don't really care to control them or if you have i think for the most part our buildings were occupied almost the entire game yeah they were they were quite strong but you have to like use a die to just sit on top of the building in order to get access to it uh, which was interesting and that's where i made the pivot towards trying to race out the nuke was because I saw you were you had 
like an armor unit and one other die. So you have three dice on the battlefield just dedicated to holding those buildings. And I saw you were rolling only like two dice. And I'm like, oh, man, he's not going to be able to do much for the next two turns. Uh, and he's kind of locked into his position. And even if he gets all three of these dice marched over, he needs a fourth. And I can block one more in the process of getting nukes. So that's that's where I pivoted because I saw that you, you were kind of short-staffed. Yeah, I got like really hard production blocked. I, I at one point I had the so we we both had the econ building where if you have four dollars you get an extra dollar each turn, but I decided to spend all four of my dollars to get more units uh, early on, which I I needed. I think at the time I did that, you had a really big advantage on the field. And I was just trying to catch up. So I did that. It let me get some good units out. But then I had no money basically the entire rest of the game. I was like praying to God that I could ever roll a six so that I could get the, the $2 um, on on the upgraded building. Uh, but I just, you know, didn't uh, didn't roll well and things didn't work out for me. And yeah, I think it it works as a tactical game. I think if you go in kind of devoted to one strategy you're, and, and you're unwilling to pivot based on what your opponent's doing, you're probably going to lose because that means your opponent is pivoting. And so it's, yeah, it's really about reading the field, the state of your opponent's economy in terms of both money and dice available, the state of the battlefield, what you can what you can counter cheaply versus what's going to be expensive. Uh, in yeah, I, I, I liked it quite a bit. It's an interesting game. I believe it was just recently kickstarted and sent out to backers, and now they're shifting to a retail release or maybe a pre-order. Actually, let me look that up. Yeah, it was funded on Kickstarter, and now you can buy it on their website, it looks like. I don't see any other place where you can buy it. So I don't know if it's going to retail or not, but you can certainly buy it directly from them. And I'll have a review out at some point, but so far, first impressions are pretty positive. I I thought it was quite good. The production's really nice. Yeah. It's, it is actually a box that does not waste one bit of space, <laughs> which is, it's a small thing and it doesn't really matter, but there's so many board games where, you know, you have so much empty air in the box. This one, it's packed in there. Yeah. I We've, we've played a few games like that lately that have really, like, the game's really you know, fairly elaborate, but the box is really small and it's definitely a departure from the norm. Cause you know, when, you, when I think of a board game box, there's really only two shapes that I think of. It's like, you've got the, you know, the slightly uh, rectangular one and then there's a square one and they're both huge. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, good, good on them for making a box that actually, I, I suppose that's a, that's a benefit when you're only selling online, right? Yeah. If you're not going to retail, there's less of this incentive to have it look good on the, on a sh shelf, like a physical shelf. And then online, it does, I mean, maybe people get a, a misperception or misconception of the game uh, based on what they're seeing the box size to be, but I don't know. I don't think it's, I think people realize, if you're a board gamer, you realize by now that you can have very great, complex, even games in small packages. So, yeah, it's a positive development for sure. Uh, that's Dice Command. Let's move now to Battle for Baternia. This is another two-player... Well, okay, Dice Command, you can play... 
two-player, you can play a three-player free-for-all, or you can play a four-player team game or a four-player free-for-all. I don't know how well the free-for-all would work. I don't know. If, that doesn't seem that interesting to me. I, I'd be willing to try it. Yeah, I'd um, try it. But I, I think the four-player team game could be cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I think at its heart, it's a two-player game. Same thing with Baternia. At its heart, it's a two-player game. There are rules for four players, huh. but it's kind of like... It's just 2v2, right? It's 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 a four-player game in the same way that War of the Ring is a four-player game <laughs> or Star Wars Rebellion. It's a two-player game. You just kind of split up the duties. Yeah. Uh, so I think of it as a two-player game. Anyways, Battle for Baternia is, came out a couple years ago. And I had barely heard of it. And it turns out it's really good. <laughs> I don't know how th this slipped under everyone's radar because it's I'm having a lot of fun with it. It is a MOBA-inspired board game. So if you haven't played a MOBA-style game, that would be uh, most popularly League of Legends or Dota 2. Blizzard also has one. I can't remember what it's called. Heroes of the Storm? Maybe? Is is that it? I think I might have played that one once. Yep. It's uh it wasn't very good. <laughs> it was gimmicky if I remember correctly. But it's it's this genre of game, a uh, video game where you're fielding these heroes, you're playing as these heroes and you're trying to capture like the opponent's base and there's all these strange conventions, strange to me at least, that have defined it as a genre. Most notably that there are three lanes. And you're fighting mostly among those lanes. And then in between the lanes is, is what's called the jungle area. And so sometimes you'll have a dedicated person who goes into the jungle and fights like the, the, the computer enemies. There's towers that defend the key junctions. And I don't know. There's just it's so restricted as a genre it's it's so obviously a genre that was created after one game because there doesn't seem... I mean, there are significant variations between the different video game ones. I've played both League and Dota 2 and the one you mentioned, but only once, I think. And the differences between them, to, in my mind, are quite subtle. Dota 2 is, is a bit more complex than League of Legends. Uh, League, for me, was the most accessible uh, just to figure out what what is going on. There's a couple other nuances. Anyways, the idea is that you have these heroes. In the video games, you have minions. So you have just AI characters that are just trucking along, walking along the paths and fighting uh, on your behalf, but they're relatively weak. And so actually the major benefit of the minions is that you're able to kill them and then generate money, and then you can go back and upgrade your equipment or get other equipment or potions or whatever. Uh, but most of the game is about figuring out when to engage and how to engage the enemy heroes in the process of leveling up. Uh, because if you kill an enemy hero, you get a pretty significant monetary reward, which just accelerates your victory. So it's a very swingy, not, not swingy. There aren't very many catch up mechanisms in the in the digital games from from what i'm aware that's how they yeah. the games seem to go i mean there's yeah there a lot of it is in the jungle there's like two big bosses and if you get the bosses you can get temporary bonuses but oh that's right yeah if if you if you're down like if your team is down by like two or three people who've been killed 
you're you're going to be in rough shape for sure. Anyways, all that to say that Baturnia captures all of that pretty well. And it does so by I think very smartly abstracting out a lot of the a lot of the smaller elements in order to focus specifically on hero v hero combat. So there are no minions in the game. Instead, you can take an action with a person to farm, and that just means you get money. It eliminates, except as some kind of optional rule, it eliminates the jungle aspect of it pretty much entirely. And it just focuses on on the hero-to-hero combat. Now, in doing so, it actually makes, it actually does a very nice job of justifying the map. Because you could easily see this game take one step further into abstraction and just get rid of the map. And then it's just a card game. Which can work. Because I don't remember if you played this game, Ben. Did you ever play the Exceed games? Oh, yeah. Like once. It's just like a... It's like a fighting game. Yeah, a video it's game like fighting game. one-dimensional where you either go forwards or backwards. Yep. Yeah. That's what this game most reminds me of. Huh. I see that. But I think it does enough to justify the map. And this is something I've seen, especially when I've gone to the local convention for game makers. So it's uh, or indie game developers. Uh, it's called Boston. What is, what is it? Boston Indie. What's the name of that convention? I forget. There's a Boston area indie game convention. The name is very close to those words, what I just said. Uh, but it comes up with some kind of acronym. Anyways. A large chunk of the games I'm playing are like this. They're like hero combat games on a map. Every single one of them that I've played the two to three times I've been to that convention, which is probably close to 10 games because so many of them are like that. The whole time I'm sitting there, I'm like, why does this map exist? (laughs) This is clearly just trying to be Magic the Gathering and then you made a map. And nothing about the map has generated any interesting decisions for me. We all just raced toward the middle and then fought each other while standing in one section of the map. Or we just like wasted turns moving about the map to get to the fun part of the game. But Baturnia, I think there's enough to justify the map. So you have the three junction points in the middle that contain more money. And so if you do a farming action there, you get two coins instead of one. And coins are how you level up. And so in the beginning of the game, you kind of can't let your opponent just sit on those spots. Like, you can't play defensively because you also want to get to those spots. The problem is, or the not a problem, but the interesting part is once you and your opponent all race towards those money spots and you're both there, now neither of you really want to farm because now you're giving up an opportunity to attack the other person. <laughs> and so you're fighting over, like, the opportunity to not fight in that spot <laughs> if you like kill one of their one of their people because uh, then you can farm and then that can get a give you a big old temple tempo boost uh, but the moment that someone loses that battle in the middle of the board in the three lanes i think they gotta swing back and start playing defensively towards their towers because now they're at this tempo loss where the other person is probably leveled up maybe two more levels ahead of them which is giving them all sorts of additional powers. And I think the play is you pull back and try to play defensively until you can level up and match them um, and just give them the money, and then you just play the slow game 
and try to play defensively. So it has that element. Uh, another thing I did in the last game I played with you, I think, Ben, was it with you or with Amber? I don't remember. But I had a lot of very mobile people, and I had mobility, and I knew you had one character that wanted one-on-one matchups. Yeah. And so I kept positioning people in like the spaces in like the jungle spaces and then doing later movement during my action turn in order to get the matchups I wanted, which was really cool Uh, because how the game works is that the main action part of the game is that you have a movement phase and an action phase and it's sort of deck buildery where you have a hand of cards. So you assign cards to all four of your heroes uh, face down. And then there's the movement phase where you go back and forth one hero at a time and they get to move, if they want, up to one space away. Now, the map is very condensed. Like, it's two spaces to get to the opponent's tower. So there's not, so, there's not a lot of, like, wandering around doing nothing while you're traveling. Like, you can pretty much travel to where you want if you want to get there. So you go back and forth, and there's the mind games of the movement. And then you go back and forth revealing and playing your action cards uh, to do attacks and stuff. And timing that out is really, really fascinating. That's super fun. Like the mind games of how to organize how you're timing all the actions. Because if you didn't defeat a hero before they take their turn, you're just taking like an entire turn away from them. Yeah. Uh, and I found that really, really cool. W- what were your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I mean, I, I only played it the once. Uh, it definitely evoked the feel of... Amoba very very well. Um, I kind of went home and was like, I kind of want to play League now, <laughs> and I haven't played League for you know a few years. I think I probably would need to play it a few more times to have you know any strong opinions. I I I liked the characters I played. I don't think I drafted particularly well, having it be my first time. But that's you know part of the process of learning a game. Uh, you're just gonna make mistakes until you know what you're doing. But yeah, I would I I definitely liked it enough to keep playing. Yeah. Yeah, once you my second play was much better than my first cuz then I knew kind of what the characters were about and the in the initial character draft became much more interesting. Uh when Amber and I first played, I didn't even bother with a draft cuz why yeah. you know anything? Yeah. Honestly, it it was a little overwhelming cuz there's like what 40 or 30 characters. Oh, there's I think 19 or 18. Oh, okay. It felt like there was a lot <laughs> and I didn't want to spend like half an hour reading all the cards so i just kind of chose a few that looked interesting but it, it it you know they they went together not great but they they all had their roles yeah i suspect as i've played it now i don't know how balanced i don't know i don't want to after three or three games four games i don't want to complain about balance but there've certainly been mvp characters i've played with and i'm like wow that they were very good. <laughs> uh, there was one, the the one, the duelist that wants to just be, it, it gets a, an attack bonus if it's only in an area with one other enemy. You play the right card, and I was able to do this against Amber. If you can get in an isolated spot and play the correct card, I just like one-shotted one of her heroes because it can do nine damage, and nine is like the median HP for a given hero. And so I one-shotted one of her heroes in the first turn of the game. And I'm like, holy moly, this guy's good. But even even if he's not isolated, his attacks are still decently strong. 
Um, I suppose his counter is like straight up like uh, uh, tanks. Yeah. If you have physical attack reduction. Yeah, because I think his the the nine damage card you're thinking of it's a attack two three times. Right. And if he's by himself, he gets plus one to all attacks. So if you're you know playing someone who has you know no defense, yeah, no defense, then it's three. But if you're playing someone who has a defense of two, then it's just a three damage attack. Right. And there only seems to be one, maybe two really truly tanky characters. There seems to be you an had one imbalance. Of them. I had the one purest tank, just, yeah, for yeah. sure. I think there's maybe one other. There's like the cleric is like a healer tank, uh, but even then, the, when I played the cleric, they didn't feel that tanky. I don't know. It seems like offensive powers are definitely favored in the game, and I suppose that's probably deliberate to make sure the game doesn't stall. Um, but. I think the ideal comp might be like three offensive characters and one support slash tank. I don't know if you'd want to do like two supporting characters and two offensive. I, that might be a bit too passive and you're just going to get overwhelmed. But I don't know. I got to play with it. But the fact that I'm like thinking about yeah, team I mean, compositions is, is pretty strong endorsement for in, the game. I think. In, in League too, like, you know, generally you've got you know, one person who's your ADC who does, you know, high attack damage. You've got your mage who does high magic damage. And then, you know, so that's two offensive. You've got one support whose clear role is to, you know, give buffs. And then you've got a tank and then the jungler can be kind of whatever you want. Um, so it's fairly well defined in league. And I think it's all right if, you know, a game that's, riffing off of league is also fairly defined as far as team comp yeah it just seems that like no 12 or 13 of the 19 might be just offensive maybe not maybe there's more nuance i i've played with most or i i've played in games with all the characters now yeah i haven't played as all of them yet but i've tried to be unique every time i've played Uh, so i've played now with almost all of them and yeah, the differences are subtle. There's nothing super, super extreme. But again, it reminds me of Exceed. Like everyone has their defined uh, strengths and weaknesses. They're pretty easy to grasp. But most of the characters are within, they're like on the fat part of the bell curve. There's a couple very unique characters. I think that tank is clearly just there to get in the way and absorb damage. Uh, he is much more damage absorption, although he is weak to magic, but there's not a whole lot that deal magic at- attacks. Anyways, there's like one purely ranged character, and that's it. Although ranged is particularly advantageous on a map that's so small, there's maybe two to three that are purely support. Like the bard is purely support that... Obi Wan Kenobi character, <laughs> what were they called? Um, Obi Two or something. I forget exactly what it was, it was, but you're not wrong. It was that's that was pretty much straight up yeah. support, right? Uh, it it has some good attacks. The okay. character has some good attacks, but it, its ultimate is, you know, level up somebody who's in the same space that you are. Yeah, yeah. and then, but it does have, I think, like a four or a five attack. And then there's the bard is mostly movement and and stuff. I remember the cleric. I think I played in the first game I played, and they're 
somewhat tanky. They had like two of their four cards were heals and two were attacks. So fairly, that's about as supportive as you're going to get, which I guess, you know, everyone has the ability to attack. Even the bard had an attack. So yeah, I guess that's just to keep the pace of the game up because once you know what you're doing, it can be a fairly quick game. I think 30 to 45 minutes once you know what you're doing. Uh, maybe even less once you get to a point where, you know, you understand when to concede. Because again, <laughs> it's definitely a game where it can snowball really rapidly. And fortunately, the game is set up as such that the game, even if you play it out to the end, it doesn't go much further past the point where you're like, yeah, this person's definitely going to win. So that's to the game's benefit. I got to talk about the card play because I think it's really, really cool. And in how it simulates cooldown. So you start, every hero starts at level one, and that means you get one of the cards from their deck. And their deck is only four cards, because there are four levels. And then every time you level up a hero, which you can do in between game rounds, uh, you get to grab another card from their deck and put it in hand. Until finally, you once they hit level four, they get their ultimate ability, which is roughly on the power level of like kill an opponent character i'd say slightly under a guaranteed kill like one of them was a guaranteed kill with a certain condition i I can't remember that's about the power level of the ultimates they're which means they're quite powerful uh because yeah once you get two to three kills you're like halfway through the game and how it simulates cooldown is that whenever you use a card you put it in your discard pile And then once you use up your deck and you need to access your discard pile again, you just flip it over. So now the cards that were put in the discard pile first are now on the top of the deck. And so you're trying to dig through your deck quickly at certain points and slowly at other points in order order to get access to your higher powered hero specific cards as much as possible. And what that eventually means is that typically every hero's maybe going to get the chance to fire off their ultimate once. I suppose if you played really defensively, you could try to cycle an ultimate, your ultimates into being able to play them a second time, but so far that hasn't happened in the games I've played, Uh, which makes the end of the game actually really climactic and cool as people start accessing their ultimates, and that's kind of the pivot point uh, where maybe you can launch a comeback or something like that. Uh, and it's just paced really nicely. Like there's so many smart decisions in this game. Uh, the artwork, I think it looks all right. Some of it's a bit clunky. Um, it's, it's a small publisher and I believe it's maybe their first game. I think it's, I don't know if it's their first game, but I think it's their first, first game of note. Perhaps there might've been a couple smaller card games before. Uh, but this is the first one I heard of and I only heard of it recently, even though it came out a couple years ago. And it's just really nicely done. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a very and I keep using this word. I think a very smartly designed game. There are a lot of very good choices made uh, in in a, in adapting something to try to capture the feel of it rather than trying to do like a one to one match. All right, next game we're gonna we're gonna talk about has not been released yet. In fact, I don't think it's going to be released until early to mid next year. But I got my hands, my grubby, grubby hands on an advanced copy. You heard us talk about this game once before when I was interviewing the publisher slash co-designer, I believe, uh, James Naylor. Naylor? Naylor? I, Sorry, James. I 
don't remember how to pronounce your name. Uh, and that is Board Games, the Board Game, the Card Game. A card game based upon a fake board game about board games. <laughs> which is hilarious. Uh, and this is like kind of a party game. Kind of not a party game. It's, it's in that weird. gray middle area. It's yeah. in a it's in a very odd middle area, but I found it pretty charming. Yeah, we played it a couple of times. It's really quick. Yeah, it's like ten minutes long, and what you're doing is you are trying to create four card poker hands, essentially three of them, face up in front of you. You're playing two cards at a time, and the trick is you have to put your best one. It's the strongest poker hand on the top row, the second strongest in the middle row, and the weakest on the third row. The weakest one, however, scores the best for a given style of poker hand, uh, and it scores lower as you go up. And then it's got this whole party game thing attached to it where you're also, like, making, you know, as you make these rows of cards... They develop into like a game concept because all the cards have like genres and mechanisms and stuff on them. And then there's this whole party game like aside as you stop and everyone pitches one of their games and then you vote on whoever had the best pitch, uh, which is fine. Yeah, it honestly like that that part felt a little tacked on to me. It is. It is absolutely tacked <laughs> on. Like I said, I, I talked to the designer. It was tacked on. But as vestigial limbs go, it's an entertaining one. Yeah. It's just I don't think anyone's gonna build their game around that part of or you know, build their poker hand around that part of the game. No, you're not thinking about it at all. It is yeah. just attached on at the end. And it's it's fun. We got some laughs from it. Is it enough to like recommend the game if you didn't like the rest of it? No. It's not going to redeem the game for you. Like, maybe you end up taking the deck of cards and making a more pure party game with it. I could totally see people doing that, <laughs> uh, where it becomes a pitching-style game. In fact, you could do that. You just shuffle the deck, and then you you you, you could develop a very much like apples-to-apples-style game out of this deck of cards. Yeah, yeah. If you want better, better than apples-to-apples, though, because apples-to-apples is not not a good game. It's fine. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. I had fun playing it 15 years ago <laughs> in high school. I was entertained okay. by it. Fair. It's fair. There's nothing wrong with apples to apples. It's it's an acceptable way to spend time. You know, there are better party games, certainly. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hesitate to even call it a game. Like, it's... It is usually not played in the manner of a game. Yeah. It's just... It's, it, it feels more like... A popularity contest where you don't know who the people are. I don't know. We we can we can move on. No, it's it's a fair <laughs> critique of apples to apples. It's a it's fine. Anyways, I think you make a really interesting variant on it with this deck of cards that would be better than the original apples to apples game, and sure. certainly yeah. many of the spinoffs <laughs> that have been developed <laughs> from apples to apples. Although I've I've heard a couple of them are decent, but. I don't really care about that anymore. Anyways, I found the poker part of it to be actually pretty surprisingly challenging. <laughs> yeah, I never <laughs> We put I th- what did we play twice or three times? 
I don't remember. I, two I think or three it times. was at least twice, and I failed to even construct valid hands each time. I always had my hands out of order. I, it, it's like I was. I went into it with like the idea, like, oh, well, this will be fine, and then it wasn't at all. Yeah, it feels a bit too quick. Like it wants to, it's like it wants to be a more complex game of like trying to puzzle this out, but it's like over before you know it. It's like it, you know, every game is only six turns. Yeah. Like it's just six turns of placing two cards each time. And you do get these extra action cards that allow you to, to manipulate things. But man, you can't like stack them, which is kind of a disappointment to me. Yeah. I wish you could. Yeah. I don't know why there's a limit on one per turn. Uh, because it always felt like, and maybe this is me being overly cautious, but I I felt like a normal straight is probably the highest you can try to go for. Or, you know, maybe a flush. Yeah. Well, straight's above a flush, right? No. Flush is whatever, higher. Whichever one's higher. One of those two. Whichever one's higher. Like, the four of a kind or the straight flush seemed... Almost like it it, it almost seemed like a shooting the moon gambit where you're either going to succeed really well or you're not. But insofar as you accomplish one of those on your top row game, you're probably sacrificing the bottom ones because you're using all your cards, all your bonus cards to help achieve that top one. But the whole point of clearing getting the top one high is to make the bottom ones have more space to be better. But then I don't think you're able to do that. Yeah. Like my biggest problem was. I would always draw into some really amazing combo that was not in my top row. Like the second game we played, I drew into a four of a kind and I couldn't do anything with it because it was in the middle row. <laughs> I, I wanted it, you know, so I had to, I think I had four nines and I had to, you know, just trash one of them because um, I couldn't do anything with it. The first game I drew into a straight on my bottom row. <laughs> it's like, you know, you just, yeah, you're, you're really at the mercy of the cards. Yeah. So, I don't know. It seemed to. It seemed like almost all results were going to be within a f- pretty narrow margin of looking like a straight on top, and then maybe like two two pairs, and then that's probably about the highest you're going to reasonably achieve, unless you really try for something ambitious and get lucky, right? And maybe that's where the game goes, and that makes it interesting. I don't know. Honestly, it felt like, I felt constricted by the game. Yeah, it it's so short that it almost doesn't really matter. I I th- I would have liked to have had either um like more more rows where you're trying to do that or like some it, it felt too short to do what I needed to do cuz by the time you have to commit to something like you know, it it's really the second turn. When yeah. you have to commit to something and you don't like there's so many cards that are still to come. And if you commit to something and then, you know, later you draw into something really good that you can't use now, it's just, it's frustrating. Yeah. And it's yeah. hard to pivot. Right. Yeah. Because if you right, if you want to commit to your top row to like a straight or a flush, it's really hard to pivot into something that's almost that. Right. How are you going to pivot from a straight down to a three, three of a kind? Like that's really hard to do. Yeah. I mean, it might be easier to pivot from four of a kind to three of a kind, because that's... Maybe you know, that's the play. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I got to play it more. We only did play it with three players. I was told by James that it it's, it's best at four or five players, I, which I 
I, but I don't know how much it's going to change. Yeah, how does that even matter? I don't like. I don't know how that matters. It doesn't. Affect... You're seeing the same number of cards. I mean, I guess you could look at what other people have and see, like, oh, there's no more fours left or something. Oh, like that. I guess you get. Oh, uh, yeah, but you I would, get I, to see. I know that I wasn't paying attention to the cards that you guys had. Well, I mean, that's <laughs> like the next level of strategy is yeah. paying attention to the cards everyone else has. But man, if everyone's doing that, will the game it, drag? It yeah, it doesn't feel like it's a game that's that really um makes you want to do that. It, it feels like it it should be like yeah, like a 10-15 minute game. But and maybe it, if everyone's best. analyzing at that level, I I don't think like the 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 saving grace of the game for me is that it's short and you can just keep going. But if it turns into this you know, deep analyzation of everyone's cards after each reveal. And there's so many cards that get thrown away too, right? That you don't get to see or are those all face up? Well, it's a, a third of the cards that are drawn. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'd be willing to give it a shot, taking it more seriously with four or five players. So you get lots yeah. of I I mean, information. I think there are enough other games out there that I would be more interested to delve into deeper than board games, the board game, the card game. Although I do like the concept. The it's, concept is interesting and the title is fantastic. The art's really fun. The prototype I have, maybe a third of the art is finished and the rest is sketches, but uh, they look Which really cool. Which actually, like, honestly, for what it's trying to do is fine because it's about constructing a board game and it's okay if you don't have finished art when you're constructing a board That's game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even the sketch... <laughs> The sketch version of this game is, <laughs> yeah, it works. Yeah. But ultimately, after the first couple of plays, the game feels very uncertain about what it wants to be. And it's not just that it has this party thing lopped onto it. I'm not even cons- thinking about that. It feels like it doesn't know if it wants to be a quick kind of parlor game style thing where you're just like... You know, there's occasionally a really interesting decision or if it wants to try to puzzle out this, like be a quick playing still, but quite intense puzzle, you know, for what it is. I don't know. I don't know where it where it plays best between those extremes. It it kind of feels like solitaire, but with other people. Where, yeah, there isn't like, really. Other than... <laughs> there, there, there's just not. There's not really any, um, any direct interaction with the other people other than just trying to score higher than they are. Yeah, and just seeing what cards they played. Yeah. So, yeah, in that sense, I don't know. A bit, a bit awkward. Yeah. But I do got to play it with more yeah, people. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's short enough that I really don't mind playing it. So we'll a few I, more I would definitely play it more. All right, let's save the perhaps the most interesting for last, although all these games are interesting in their own way, but this one has really gotten under my skin. Is that, the, I don't know, I, I keep thinking about it. And I, that's, I think the, the phrase is living rent-free in your head now. I think that's a that's thing That's a that pejorative, though, isn't it? Oh, maybe, I don't know. I think that's typically a pejorative. Anyways, the game is Union Station. It's coming to Kickstarter in two weeks, I think. One to two weeks, and it is a cube rail game, although it's not cubes. They're instead tiny cylinders, uh, which makes which me is sad. one of the most disappointing parts of the game. I mean, that's true. That's actually my least favorite part of the game, is the <laughs> tiny cylinders. 
because the original version of Through the Ages has scarred me from that component for all of time. I hate that component piece. It's the worst. And cubes are the best component. The best board game component of all time is the cube. You're not wrong. I'm just waiting to say that and someone like gets real mad or something. I mean, I feel cu- like a lot of great. people, I, th- I think a lot of people would, a I lot mean, of people listening perhaps are like, what is he talking I, about? I would but say. But I sincerely, sure. I mean, maybe the card in abstract is, yeah. Yeah, you know, okay. the all time number one, but that's boring to say. But like, also, if I have the choice between cubes and minis, I'm probably going to go minis. But it doesn't really need. I would need almost always choose cubes. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, they're they're easy to place, like you know, they're to, so to, pure. To use. Yeah, they're so pure. Doesn't matter which direction they are because they're they're symmetrical in all directions. Uh, they're solid. You know exactly what they are. They don't roll away. Six sides. They go exactly where you yep. want them to go. They're small enough to have many of them. Uh, at once, but easy to pick up because they're, you know, they, I don't know, they're easy to pick up. They can't slip through your fingers. They're perfect. Cubes are great. Anyways, uh, Union Station comes in a very tiny package, and it's like the little miniature board and even miniature cards. Uh, but that's smart because I assume it saves them lots of money in these uncertain publishing times <laughs> where shipping is like five times the price it used to be. Uh, so understanding that it is a very small production, it's almost like a game in miniature. Yeah. And it, it feels like it too. Cause I, you know, sometimes when you're placing the little discs, it's like, if you don't have very steady hands, it's like you misplace it like four times before you finally get it. Right yeah. Next. But fortunately, yeah, like, it's fine. It's fortunately the placing the, the, the discs on the map is the least important part of the game. <laughs> it's almost superfluous. It's true. It's true. It always feels bad when you have to do that. Yeah. Um, anyways, it's it's a cube rail game. All that to say, it's a cube rail game that doesn't actually contain cubes, but it contains things that are historically represented by cubes. Uh, but it's much more a timing game. It, it, it is a timing game. And I don't have a ton of experience with cube rail games, and I'm pretty sure the cube rail games I have played are weird ones. Um, except for the one time I played Chicago Express, but I have no memory of it. I remember playing it. I don't remember anything about the game other than that, that I failed miserably. Uh, the other Cube Rail games I've played are Stevenson's Rocket, which I think is very weird. It's a Kinetia thing. I've played The Sioux Line, which is deliberately weird. And I've played Paris Connection, which is like the simplest possible Cube Rail game. Is that the one that's on BGA? Yeah. Okay. I think I got you to play it once. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was it, fine. It was fun. It's it's a fun, quick little game. Uh, Union Station, I think, is closer to like what the cube rail genre is supposed to be, but I think it also has its own quirks. The big thing with Union Station is the dividend payouts. So, oh, I've also played Irish Gage, but I don't remember much about... Irish Gage was much more interesting on map. This one's much more about timing timing purchasing like stock purchasing anyways you're completely focused on these dividend payouts so how it works is that the there's an initial auction where one of every of each of the five company shares is auctioned off the auction value that whoever wins each individual auction sets the value of that company so the current value of that company and then every six to seven spots on the valuation track there's a dividend spot and if you go onto or exceed that spot, moving 
in increasing the value of the company, it triggers a dividend, which triggers the spot where you land on divided by however many shares exist that are held by players. And the two ways you can increase the value of a company after the initial auction are by either placing track onto towns and cities, which is the map part. But I mean, the number of discs that you have available for each company is so limited that you're almost always going to follow the exact same path unless you get blocked out somewhere. Uh, so that's pretty locked in how, what, the, what the potential value for any given company is on map. Yeah. There's not a lot of creative it, stuff there. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it may vary by like three or four, but it's, yeah. It's as long pretty as much it, locked As in. long as it gets placed, it's, yeah. Yeah. Um, the other way a company can gain value is if someone purchases one of the shares. So how it works is one, after the initial auction, the entire rest of the shared shares are shuffled together and then put into like a, a display. Uh, and three three cards are up for, for purchase at any given time during the game. And then the fourth one, the, the one coming up, you get to see, you get a preview. But other than that, they're random, they're completely randomly shuffled in. And the longer the share's been out available but not purchased, the more it will increase the value of the company when it is purchased. And uh, it'll bump it up by one, two, or three spots. And then on your turn, you you have a very simple choice. You can either lay track of a company that you own, you can buy a share, or you can sell all of your shares of a company that you hold. When you sell those shares, they are eliminated from the game. And then the value of the company decreases by six. That's weird to me. That that makes a really weird decision space where coming from where I've played more 18xx games, yeah. where selling can often be very, very, very damaging, it's not that damaging because you've decreased the value of the company, yes, but now you've undiluted the shareholdings. <laughs> so you might have gone... To where, you know, the company lost six, it's gone from 26 to 20, and it's going to hit 23 for the now the next dividend. Uh, but now you've gone maybe to where you were holding 50% of the company and one other player was holding 50% at 26 value. And now it's at 20 value and they have 100% of the company. They've actually, like, gained value on it almost. Yeah, I think it's this weird space where... The only times you actually want to sell would be if it's guaranteed that the company won't pay out any more dividends, which in that case is just obvious that you want to sell. Or if you only have one share and you want to hurt the people who have a lot of shares. I, I could see that as well. Yeah, if you're but selling like one out of six. Yeah, but I still feel like most of the time there's a better... You know, obviously, yeah, that's a good... But the limitation is that you have other options. Right, exactly. Yeah. And there's almost always a better option than selling. I, I could see it, like, if you're in this situation where you really don't have any good options for one reason or another, maybe that's what you do. But Yeah, like the last game we played, there were, what, three sell actions? Total? Yeah, I, I sold... I sold twice, actually. There I sold once. There, there may have been, like, four or five. Yeah, but, um, but they all came in the last three quarters, the last quarter of the game, rather. Um, which makes my, sense. Mine I was I was in a weird pickle on one point where the company I was holding could not hit another dividend spot, which would make me want to sell it before someone else sells it and tanks me. But if I sold it, based on how the dividends scaled, if I sold it, then it would ha get it would gain access to the dividend spot it just got again. 
Uh, so I was I was in a pickle there, uh, which is interesting. But honestly, I don't mind when a game has like a, either a strategic option or an action that is almost always the wrong play. And I was thinking about this the other day driving, and I was letting my mind wander while listening to another board game podcast, and they touched on something slightly tangential to this, but I, I think I disagree, and it, I, I suppose it depends on the type of game. So like your standard, like trying to a, appeal to a lot of people game, yeah, you typically don't want, you typically want all the different paths and stuff to be at least tempting at all times. Right, you want to you want to present the, you want to present lots of interesting options. But I think it, there's something really compelling about a game, or at least a section of a game, where ninety five percent of the time you want to do option A, and then the entire part of that game comes down to figuring <laughs> out that five percent. Yeah, that's really cool to me. I love that, and I think it's. I think it's the reason I like Tokaido so much is because you can play a game of Tokaido playing okay, pretty much always just taking the next available space. And maybe 60 to 80% of the time, that's probably the correct move. But the, a game of Tokaido is figuring out when you don't do that. Like when you don't yeah. take the default option. And I think a lot of people don't like that. I think it's really interesting. Takedo is kind of a weird comparison to me. I, I don't. I agree with you in the like, yeah, the the choice is always, almost always this. I just Takedo to me is not that interesting of a game. <laughs> I, that may be that may be a bad thing to say. Yeah, no, I, I I don't know why I like it so much. <laughs> it's not really well. I think my it's my kind of game. It's designed not to be very interesting. It's it's like like the whole. Concept of the game the is it's about taking a walk in what Japan, right? And whoever can have the most yeah. But once you get walk, good at Takedo, it's really cutthroat. Yeah, yeah. Which is another thing that I think we've talked about before. How ironic that is, given the <laughs> yeah the premise Actually, of the game. Let me call out Gilhova, since uh, I'll, uh, I don't know if that's a good idea. I I greatly respect Gil, <laughs> and. <laughs> I love Ludology podcast, but I've been ke- catching up on Ludology, and he has said twice now in the last, I don't know, six, eight months maybe, that he thinks two-player Tokaido is awful. Hmm. And it's sp- specifically because it gets so cutthroat. And I just think it's a different game. It just becomes a different game. I don't know if you've ever played Tokaido at two players. I don't think I have. I think it's only been... I may have played three once, but I think that's the lowest... Do you know how it works? No. So, here's how it works. There's a third dummy character. Ah, uh, and he always takes the next and available. And it, it's only used for blocking. And I can't remember who controls it at any given time, but it, it shifts control between the players based on position. But it's only used to block spots. And so you're constantly putting it in front of, on the space where you don't want your opponent to go and it becomes a completely different game <laughs> and one that's very mean very mean and very low scoring hmm. and Gil thinks it ruins the game I think it makes it transforms it into a completely different game that is equally compelling yes it's it doesn't capture the it doesn't capture like a leisurely walk 
it captures an incredibly passive aggressive car trip it's (laughs) road trip it's a walk where you have like someone secretly like stalking you or like going ahead of you and ruining the things that you wanted to do yeah no it's just it's like it's like a really bad road trip with someone who's (laughs) super whiny and constantly blocks all of your fun yeah okay which which is a fun game anyways (laughs) all that to say that uh, I think the sell action, even though it's very rarely the right choice, the fact that it's almost never the right choice actually makes it more interesting to me. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, in Union Station. But the rest of the game is really trying to figure out when you can, because you want to accumulate shares for sure, because shares are just value and they pay out dividends. But timing it looking at how and when other players are going to be able to afford certain shares. You know, maybe you want to buy a given share, but you see that if you lay track on this one company, it actually prices out that company for someone so they don't buy into a share of the company that you like. Um, And then you know you can maybe get the share you want your next turn. There's all these interesting decisions. The initial auction... I don't know. So I listened to a podcast where they hated this game. They really hated this game. And they thought that the game is essentially scripted. Their argument was that there's no reason not to pay the full amount, so 30 bucks for the company you get in the initial auction. Because then you're, you're going to trigger a, a dividend payout at 32 and then now you have the most possible liquidity for additional purchases going forward. And then if everyone does that in a non five player game. Yeah, it does skew things because then whoever got assigned first player uh, for the auction, then essentially gets a free share in a company. I think the company, I I forgot to read the rules. I think the company starts at five and you just get the share, Uh, but then you're just getting five additional free dollars. It, It would be a very different game to play that way because if everyone does that, then all of the shares are so expensive, the whole, except for the really cheap company. Yeah. The whole game. It shifts it. But I don't, I dispute the idea that that is the correct move. Because ideally, I think you'd prefer to have like two shares at 12 that are both going to pay 13 dividends. Because you lose, you lose initial liquidity. But you do gain share density, and I think that pays out more in the end. The argument is once you have that scripted opening, then it's all down to the the random shuffle of the deck to see which company gets diluted quicker. But I don't think that's the case. I think I want to try it. Yeah. yeah. I want to try it with with like the first two players, you know, just taking whatever the company, the company they want at 30, and then someone like the other two players deviating and see what happens. I think the real test for that, just to see if it's a good strategy, would be one person start a company at 30, everyone else does whatever they want. Oh, that's fair. And then yeah. you see, does the one person who started the company at 30 just run away with it, or is it still competitive? And Yeah. Because last time, the last game we played, Amber got one company at 18 and another at 12, and I said the game was over. And she didn't win. She didn't, yeah. I do think she made one bad decision. I don't. I wasn't. There was one decision. I'm like, "Eh, I think that's just the wrong decision here. But everyone, she seemed to play fine. Uh, Otherwise, on the other hand, though, I think I I did end up winning, and I started the company at was it like 24 or something? Maybe, yeah. 
So I don't know. Maybe that lends credence <laughs> to the theory. Anyways, maybe I'm just inexperienced at this style of game, and then this like railroaded strategy is obvious to people who know what they're doing, and I just am yet to discover it. But man, I'm still having so much fun trying to figure it out. And the production is really slick. Like it is like a miniature game almost. Like the game could be literal like every component in the game could double in size and it's look like a normal game. Yeah. Uh but I kind of find that charming and and I'm sure it's going to help the price point a lot, but it's very very interesting to me. And maybe there is like a locked in strategy and maybe it doesn't work in the end, but the discovery process of getting to there and figuring things out has been very fascinating. I want to keep playing it. Yeah. I want to play it right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> I really want to play this game. We just got to pull Amber into it again. Yep. Uh, but Union Station, definitely one to check out. Again, maybe if you're a Cube Rail veteran, it's it's doesn't work for you. But I, I think there's something really interesting there. And it's such a pretty simple rule set. Like, there's three very easy things to do on your turn, and it's just figuring out how to sequence and time those things. And in dealing with that that valuation graph, which is where 80% of your attention is going to be, uh, it's really, really cool. I, I like it quite a bit. So, yeah, that's what we've been playing recently. And all four of these games, I want to keep playing, which... Maybe this is the most positive podcast we've ever done. <laughs> Usually when we do game overviews, there's like at least one or two stinkers. I guess board games, yeah, the board we game, were, the card game. We were game. pretty medium on that. I don't know. Maybe it'll click for me, but it hasn't been a bad time uh, playing that one. It just seems a little awkward. But the other three I'm, I'm really positive on. So uh, it's been a good, good time playing games recently because I've been getting a lot of interesting games and still more to come. Uh, certainly. Oh, I played, this wasn't on the notes, but I played online on Tabletop Simulator a game called Robotech Command. Let me double check. Robotech Reconstruction is the name of the game. It's based on an anime, which I didn't know about until 10 minutes before I played. <laughs> but it is, it's essentially a coin game. Huh. But it plays in like, 90 minutes to two hours. Wow. That is impressive. It doesn't have the card system of a coin game. It has a card system that's closer to a, a CDG, like Twilight Struggle. But everything else is straight up coin. There's like military control versus population support. It's four players. It's super asymmetrical. It's like pseudo alliances, right? Where you have like two sets of two opposing win conditions. So you end up pseudo-allying with another person. It's got like uh, it's got like these like unique special cards, like in Fire Fire the Lake, where everyone has like the one card that is like their mega power card. Yeah. It has a softer version of that, and it's really I, I was really impressed. Apparently, they're having a very hard time getting uh, the word out about this game, and I can see like yeah, it's it's given that's based on a particular anime. I can see why it might be difficult to get eyes on it from who or from people who aren't watching that anime or haven't watched it. Uh, apparently, it's the anime's been around for like 20, 30 years, and there's like billions of spinoffs and stuff. 
and there's like a U.S. version of it that has a slightly different, I don't know. There's a whole thing that they described to me, and my eyes started to glaze over <laughs> a bit. I'm like, I do really, you, really don't want to get into the minutiae of this anime do, do you universe. Have any, do you have any experience with anime at all? I have watched one anime. Okay. Which one? Uh, FLCL. Okay. Wes showed it to me in college. He said, I know you're not into anime, but I think you would <laughs> like this one. It's very, it's very like cinematic. And it was great. I loved it. Okay. It's extremely weird. It's like, it's like metaphors on metaphors on metaphors. Like the whole thing is this like coming of age puberty metaphor. There's essentially like, maybe I'll cut this part. <laughs> The the main character plays a guitar that's very clearly s- symbolizing an erection all the time. <laughs> I think it even does it even come out of his pants. Oh my goodness. It's like that level. It's like it's one of those things where it's the metaphors are so blatant and extreme that it circles back around from being a farce back into being like something really cool again. <laughs> like it's clearly all farcical. Yeah, there's the whole guitar thing. There's something with a with a drink that's a a metaphor for growing up. It's one of those things. It's it's the it's the coming of age genre. It's like Buffy, the coming of age genre where every like normal adolescent crises are physically manifested in enemies and such. Sure, it's that genre. But man, it was really cool. There's like one se- It's like one season and done. It was like a mini series. Um, and I've seen smatterings of other stuff, but not particularly interested in anime. Anyways, apparently this one is like a whole universe. Like there's a bunch of different shows and stuff. Uh, but the, the lore was pretty cool. It's about like aliens came and invaded a while ago and they almost wiped out humanity. But there's a bit of humanity left. But the aliens were also almost wiped out. So now... Like, the remnants of both of these civilizations are having to learn to live together (laughs) while they wait to figure out who can be more powerful and wipe the other out. So almost like a Battlestar Galactica vibe. Yeah. Kind of. One of the factions are was, like, the human defense, and they just kind of want to wipe out, like, they just want to have control. And then you have the alien version of that, but they're focusing on, like, converting people. They were, like, the the really uh, counterinsurgent, like, underground faction. I was playing... Oh, I was playing, like, the hippies. They just wanted everyone to get along. But they were, like, the control faction? I don't <laughs> remember. It was it was really cool. Um, I forget the lore. There's, like, two very militaristic ones and two more ground ones, but that didn't align necessarily with the control versus population. It was askew. Anyways, we should set up a time to play this on Tabletop Simulator because I think you'd like it. Yeah, I'd be down. It's very simple. It it maxes out like four rounds is the entire game, hmm. and each round is one card play by someone. But it's the Twilight Struggle thing where if you play an opponent's card and let their event happen, you get bonuses. Nice you things. get to do your own yeah. thing. Or it, it simulates. It's like halfway in between the Twilight Struggle and the coin thing. Because if you play an opponent's card, they get the event, but you get two actions, and one of them can be one of your special actions, or both of them. You get two actions, and you get access to the special actions. If you play your own card and play your own event, you get one basic action on top. Uh, So almost always someone played someone else's action. 
Anyways, you all should look into this game. I'm pretty sure it's available to purchase on their website or to pre-order on their website, Robotech Reconstruction. And it's called that because apparently there is a set of seasons in the anime or multiple different animes that are considered the reconstruction period of this entire very deep, elaborate lore. Oh, okay. So it the starts rec- out with probably the, the, invasion, the invasion. All right. And then the reconstruction era. I don't know. The Wikipedia page is very large <laughs> for this anime. Um, but I found it really cool. Uh, we got to play that one. Anyways, that's what we've been playing lately. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, don't forget to check out the thoughtfulgamer.com. We've got something coming up next week that's extremely exciting. I'm re- releasing the card and dice poll results. So I've been doing this thing. I don't even know if I told you about it, Ben. I don't think I know about it. <laughs> yeah, the card and dice poll, uh, which is based on the sight and sound poll that they do for film. And I got both game designers and game critics to submit responses simply asking them, what are the 10 greatest board games of all time? And I let them define what that means to them. And people defined it very differently, which I found really cool. And I'm going to publish all the results on Monday or Tuesday, probably Monday. And I think it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see the discussion that results from it. There's one person who's a war game designer, and all of his games he put are war games. His <laughs> list is really cool. Uh, there's a couple of people who posted what appeared to be like just the game, the 10 best games that they're playing right now that they love right now. And so there's a number of recent games. Some people took a couple of people took a very historical approach to it of like, what are the big, most influential games of all time, in my opinion? Uh, so there's all kinds of different approaches to this question, which I think is the interesting part of it. Uh, but there are a number of games, even though I didn't get as many responses that I, as I was hoping for, at least for now, there's still a couple of days or two days <laughs> as of recording for people to respond. Uh, I didn't get as many as I wanted, but there's still enough to create uh, kind of a tier list of, you know, what games were mentioned more than once. Um, and hopefully it will encourage it a good amount of discussion so that more people sign up for next year. Cause I think I'm going to try it again next year. Um, and I think it'll be really interesting. Anyways, that's coming out on Monday. I'm going to be talking with a couple people more in depth about how they made their decision and why they chose the games they chose uh, with a bonus podcast on Friday. Uh, but yeah, that'll be, that'll be fun. I'll, I'll show you what the results look like off oh, camera. I, I'm, here. I'm interested. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you, I'll give you some results. And then I think, I think I might post, I'm not going to submit my answers as part of the actual results, but I think I will, because, I don't know, that feels weird because I'm organizing it and everything, and I've seen other people's answers. I suppose I should have made the list before I got anyone else's <laughs> answers, but now that I've seen all the answers, I I don't feel like I can submit a list and keep it, I don't know, honorable. I don't know. I'm, I'm tainted because there's certain games that I want. I would. There's certain games I'd be tempted to list just to increase their ranking. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> not enough people have mentioned this game. I want this game to go up. Uh, and that would that would not be right. Anyways, yeah, I'll show you. It's it's really interesting, fascinating stuff. Uh, that's coming out on Monday. You can find that at thethoughtfulgamer.com. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to support us, please go to patreon.com slash thethoughtfulgamer. We appreciate all the support. It keeps me going. 
for sure. Thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Bye.